Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we are visiting with biochar expert and professor emeritus, David Laird. Hey, David, how you doing? I'm doing great, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing really well and really excited for our conversation today. We've got so much to cover that relates to regenerative agriculture, carbon sequestration, uh, food production yield improvements, and other uh, topics related to biochar. And uh, really, really look forward to hearing from uh, you on, on this topic. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate to be here and, and the opportunity to meet with you and, and with your audience. David Laird received a PhD in agronomy from Iowa State University in 1987. He is currently founder and president of Ensense Inc., an agrotechnology company and professor emeritus at Iowa State University. As a professor, he mentored 20 masters and PhD students. He is author and co-author of over 157 refereed journal articles and book chapters related to biochar, bioenergy, clay mineralogy, clay surface chemistry, and environmental science. His publications have been cited over 20,000 times, and his H index is 60. You can find information about that on Google Scholar. Previously, he served as editor of Geoderma, associate editor for Soil Science Society of America, Journal and Clays and Clay Minerals, and as president and vice president of the Clay Minerals Society. He is a fellow in the American Society of Agronomy and the Soil Science Society of America. David, it's welcome to the show. It's so great to have this opportunity to visit with you and I guess to kick things right off and, and, and kind of get our hands right down into the soil of the matter. Let me ask you, what what is biochar and, and why is this important right now? Uh, thanks, Aaron. Uh, biochar is charcoal, for those of you not familiar with it, but it's not the charcoal briquettes that you get in the bag and, and put in your barbecue. Those have actually have a number of additives in them. They actually physically mix in clay and starch, and sometimes they put in uh, accelerants to speed up the burning. You don't want to put a, a charcoal briquette on your uh, garden. Uh, that would not necessarily be wise. But biochar is more like the charcoal you find in a campfire, right? The, the black char that is the residue, the unburned residue of the wood in your in your campfire, but biochar can also be made from virtually any source of biological material. So it can be made from, you know, like corn stover, right? Or it could be made from a switchgrass or, you know, a wheat straw or uh, any number of different biological materials. Uh, you can put it in what's known as a pyrolyzer and turn it into biochar. Now, a pyrolyzer is a little different from a campfire. And a campfire depends on how good your campfire is, but 90-some, 95% of everything goes up in smoke, right? Uh, and a pyrolyzer, it's sort of like an oven 
but it's an oven in which you restrict the amount of oxygen that gets in there. So you heat, ideally heat the biomass, the wood or the wheat straw up with little or no oxygen present. And as it heats up, it thermally decomposes and you get some gases, smoke-like material coming off the top and the solid residue is the char. And um, that char, it's much more efficient in a pyrolyzer to produce the char than um, in a campfire or something like that. And it's, it's a material that you find naturally in soils. Um, you find here, well, I'm, I'm in Iowa, right? And we have a legacy here of like 10,000 years of prairie fires. And every time the prairie fire came roaring through, um, a small amount of char was left behind and it got incorporated into our soils. Some estimates are that, oh, I don't know, uh, between 10 and 50% of the carbon that is naturally in the soil is char, pyrogenic. It came from, from those wildfires. And, and this is true all over the world. So char is very much a natural thing. What's new, and, oh, and, and let me uh, add, that there is also a historic legacy of using char in soils. Um, a lot of the new science began when uh, a number of people discovered the so-called terra preta soils down in the Amazon. And so if you go down to the Amazon jungle, you have, uh, this is a really cool story. You have this really incredible biome down there greatest biome on the planet, right? But underneath that biome, the soils are awful. <laughs> the soils evolve with time and with weather. And down in the tropics, they've had intense leaching. And so you've got these soils, the deep red soils, they have low activity clay, so they don't hold nutrients, right? Uh, and in some cases, those uh, tropical soils can hard set, turn into stone if you dry them out. So it's a terrible soil, and yet it supports this incredible biome. And the, I was down there, and the thing that struck me was that all the roots are right near the surface. So a leaf falls in the jungle, and the leaf has nutrients in it, it has potassium, phosphorus, nitrogen, and so on. And as soon as it hits the ground, the fungi are eating away at that leaf and recycling all those nutrients back into the biome. Well, the Amerindians who lived down in the Amazon, um, you can imagine if you're trying to cut down a tree, make a garden with a stone ax, that's a lot of work. Anyhow, they figured out that they could basically dig a trench and put woody biomass in there, burn it, turn it into charcoal and incorporate that into the soil. And it would improve the quality of those soils. 
make them hold nutrients and water better. It would raise the pH, make them less acidic. And when it soils, one of the reasons the roots don't go deep in the Amazon is the soils are acidic. It's just too acidic for those roots. It starts eating holes in the roots. If you raise the pH by putting char and ash and probably uh, manures of various kind, you know, suddenly the roots can go deeper into that soil. So today, 500 years after um, that Amerindian population died out, uh, they've left behind this incredible legacy of these terra preta soils, which are anthropogenic soils, they're human-made soils, and they're still the prize horticultural uh, cropping soils down along the Amazon. They're in small patches. They're not big continuous areas, um, maybe as much as 10 hectares in a few places, but most of the patches are much smaller than that. Anyhow, discovery of these terra preta soils ignited interest in biochar about, oh, the mid-2000s. Before that, I mean, if you look at, at the number of citations around the word biochar, they're essentially zero up until about uh, 2007. And since then, it's exponential growth. And it was really that discovery, or not so much the discovery, but the recognition that the terra preta soils were anthropogenic and that the use of charcoal in soils could have a real positive impact on soil quality, soil health, uh, and, and increase uh, resilience of cropping systems uh, that really sparked the interest. So interesting. And can you explain to us a little further how the biochar enhances the soil quality like what what what's unique about biochar and what's it actually doing within the soil structure that wouldn't otherwise be there okay so soils are a mixture of minerals sand size silt size clay size minerals and organic matter and pore space, holes between those, water, air, and life, biology, uh, microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, actinomycetes, roots, arthropods, you know, all kinds of earthworms, right? It's, it's that interplay between the geology, the mineralogy, and the atmosphere and rain and, and, and sunlight and biology, the plants growing, all of it occurs at this interface of our Earth's surface, the soil. And soils evolve with time. And a big piece of that is the organic matter that's there. If you take all the organic matter, the black, the humus out of the soil, the soils tend to consolidate, they get hard, roots can't grow through them or they grow sideways. Um, and they don't hold water, they don't hold nutrients as well. So what 
soil organic matter does is to sort of fluff up the soil to make more pore spaces between the, the mineral particles and to glue those particles together to make what we call aggregates or little clumps of soil. And the organic matter is this immense reservoir of nutrients. The nitrogen is in the organic matter, sulfur's in there, and then the organic matter along with the clays have the ability to hold other nutrients like potassium and phosphorus. All right, so that's sort of the natural cycle. And okay, another part of that concept is that you know, every year plants grow, they die, the leaves fall to the ground, and some of that leaf carbon gets built into new organic matter and much of it goes back to the atmosphere as CO2. It turns out that biochar char sort of generically, we can use the word char, is very similar to that stabilized humic material, but it's, it's also a little different. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of char in our soils naturally, legacy of wildfires. Um, <clears throat> char is lightweight. Have you ever picked up a piece of charcoal? It's very light, right? And the reason it's so light is that it's full of holes. You have an electron micrograph, uh, an SEM, a scanning electron micrograph. You can see these basically 10 micron holes. So that's um, significantly smaller than a human hair. It's, it's too small to actually see with your naked eye, but they're there. And it's just this honeycomb full of holes. And those holes hold water that plants can use. The charcoal also has a lot of surface area. All those holes, there's little surfaces in there. And those surfaces become habitat for microorganisms, the bacteria, the fungi, and so on. They also function to absorb what we call dissolved organic matter. So you know, as a leaf is decomposing, um, microbes are chewing on it, right? Some of the, what they're doing is they're using that leaf for their own metabolism. So they're exhaling CO2 that goes to the atmosphere, but they're also excreting um, uh, what we call dissolved organic matter. So fragments of, of, of uh, biopolymers is how I would put it, but they're, they're just fragments of molecules, uh, organic, they might be a couple of sugar molecules hung together or, or some um, amino acids and other types of organic compounds. And those end up being absorbed on the surfaces of the char. And when they're absorbed there, they are stabilized reducing the rate at which microbes turn them into um, CO2. So what is the char doing in the soil? Well, it's fluffing up the soil. It's putting more pore space in there. With more pore space, roots can move through the soil easier. With more pore space, you can hold water, more water for the plant and you allow better aeration, movement of air 
and water and roots through that soil. Plus in a chemical sense, it's holding the, um, absorbing this, this humic material, helping to stabilize and helping to build the biological humic material in addition to the carbon itself. And it's providing habitat for the microorganisms in soils that do all this recycling. So it functions uh, in both the physical, chemical, and biological sense to enhance the soil quality or soil health, as we like to say, make it, make it a better rooting environment. Yeah, I've heard that, that biochar, when we add biochar into the soils, it's almost like uh, creating condominium complexes for the organisms and the life there. Is that is that an apt uh, analogy in your opinion? Uh, sure, sure. You make it a better habitat for the microorganisms. I think that would be a more technical way of putting it, but a condominium. Sure, sure. <laughs> it makes it, it makes it. Uh, and it, but it also will change the population dynamics too. So you might get different types of organisms living in there. And, uh, hopefully they're the beneficial ones rather than the pathological ones. <laughs> Is that an issue when you're introducing the biochar into the soil that, that you may or may not get the kinds of organism populations that you're hoping for? Um, I think that's a frontier in science that, that, needs more research. Let's put it that way. Uh, I have not seen evidence of that. Let's put it, let me just say that. It, it, that's speculative. We certainly know it influences the population dynamics, uh, but we don't know enough to say how that impacts functioning of the soil. And let me ask this just to get, sorry, go ahead, David. I was just gonna say by functioning, I mean, nutrient cycling, uh, stabilization, um, all the processes that can symbiotically support plant life. Okay. Yeah, great. Let me ask, just from a technical description point of view, um, without maybe using too many uh, terms that might not be familiar to some of our audience, what is it about the pyrolysis process that is turning the uh, woody biomass or other agricultural residues or other biological materials into biochar instead of, you know, what they would turn to if there if there was uh, uh, ambient regular levels of oxygen sure. available for the combustion? Sure. Um, so, if you look at plant tissue, a leaf right? It's a mixture of a number of different molecules. And, and a lot of it is what we call cellulose. And cellulose is um, a lot of sugar molecules strung together like a string of beads. But it also has proteins in it. And, and proteins are um, sort of more globular, and they've got uh, strings of amino acids. Uh, amino acids have uh, nitrogen in them um, and sulfur and some other things. And there are other nucleic acids like DNA, right? There's all sorts of what we would call biopolymers in that leaf tissue. 
And all of that, all of those biopolymers are basically lunch for soil microorganisms. That's where their dinner comes from. And that, that's what they eat. And so if a leaf falls on the surface of the soil, uh, the microorganisms are gonna go after it. And we say that the half-life of the carbon that is in that leaf, and typically maybe 40, 40, 41% of the leaf mass is carbon. But the half-life, the, the, the amount of time it takes for the carbon in that leaf, once it hits the soil surface, to go back up into the atmosphere, for, for half of it to go back, in, is measured in a couple of months. And this means that after three, four, five years, 99% of the carbon that was in that leaf is back in the atmosphere as CO2. And that's because the leaf is lunch for the microbes. If you take that same leaf and you put it in a pyrolyzer, you heat it up to about 500 degrees centigrade, um, it thermally decomposes and you're gonna have the smoky material coming off the top, but you'll be left with the char and the char is chemically different. It's dominated by carbon. It can be as much as 80 some percent carbon. Uh, sometimes it's lesser amounts, um, has awful, also has some ash mixed in with it. The ash is mostly oxides and, and um, of minerals like potassium, uh, phosphorus, uh, calcium, magnesium, and, and carbonates. So inorganic carbon forms uh, will be part of that ash. So if you have a high ash biomass, a high ash leaf, right? Then you'll get more ash, less carbon. If you have a um, biomass that has a lot of organic matter and very little ash in it, then you're gonna get a carbon rich char. And that typically comes from like pine wood, right? It gives you a really carbon rich char. Um, part of that chemistry that goes on during that pyrolysis reaction is that the carbon molecules start bonding to each other. And they form what we call condensed aromatic carbon. Now, everybody knows that a diamond, right, is carbon. Okay, and if I took a diamond and, and put it in the soil, it's gonna be there for millions of years. Now that's a hard way to sequester carbon or an expensive way to sequester carbon, but you all know that, that the chemical form of carbon matters. If it's in a diamond structure, it's essentially inert. No microorganism is ever gonna touch it. We can also have carbon in the form of what's called graphite. Pencil lead is graphite. And graphite is also for all intensive purposes, inert to microorganisms. They can't chew on it, they can't eat it. It's not digestible for microorganisms. Well, char is somewhere between graphite and these biopolymers that are in the leaf. It's probably a little closer to the graphite side 
It has a structure of carbon-carbon bonds, and some of them are aromatic. They have a I'm trying not to get into biochem into organic chemistry here, but you can any for those chemists out there, you know what a benzene ring is. You've got six carbons in a circle, and you've got that circle in the middle, which implies that you've got these pi electrons zinging around, making uh, uh, aromatic bonds. Well, that's what char is. It has a lot of that in it, and that means that. It is not very digestible to the microorganisms. It's not totally inert like a diamond or graphite, but it's certainly much more inert than that leaf was. So we're taking a leaf in which 99% of the carbon is going to go back to the atmosphere in a couple of years, and we're turning it into biochar and the half-life of the carbon in a biochar, it's going to vary, but let's say 500 degrees C woody biochar is going to be measured in hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it is many orders of magnitude more stable, resistant to biological degradation than the original leaf. And that is the real reason that biochar is a good agent for carbon sequestration. Because if I let that leaf land on the soil surface, in a couple of years, it's all back in the atmosphere. But if I take that same leaf and turn it into char, then I'm going to capture, I don't know, 50%. You know, maybe 30%, depending on the process I use, of the total carbon will be captured in char. The rest of it's going to go into the atmosphere as CO2, but the part that I capture is going to stay in the soil for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yeah, it's so, so important. And as we have seen an increase in atmospheric carbon from somewhere around 280 parts per million at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, now well over 400 parts per million and continuing to move year by year. These kinds of strategies are all obviously really critical to climate stabilization. And, and I'm curious, from your perspective, uh, how does biochar scale up in such a manner that it can have a meaningful impact on the climate stabilization efforts that we're hoping will uh, deploy and scale as, as a human species on the entire planet right now? Well, um, that's an excellent question, and, and we could spend about three hours talking about that topic alone. Um, the IPCC um, has said we, we not only have to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, we got to end it, right? Um, but we also have to go carbon negative in the second half of the century. That means we have to be literally pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, and reducing that atmospheric concentration. If we want to keep global warming at the 1.5 degree C level. 
And that's because we're going to over, we're, our, we're on a trajectory, our economy, our global economy is on a trajectory to overshoot uh, the safe zone as it is. And so if we don't want to get into serious trouble, and we're already seeing these ramifications in terms of all kinds of uh, climate related problems, record heat spells, you know, mega hurricanes, uh, you know, that, that accelerate in, in strength very rapidly, um, uh, you know, droughts, floods, you know, the whole, the whole gamut. Uh, and of course the forest fires that he went out in California Pacific with the Western half of the U S knows about forest fires. Uh, and of course, none of these things are, you know, simple cause effect linked to climate change. You've got bark beetles killing trees and you've got all sorts of other issues that are compounding, uh, you know, forest management and so on. But climate change is a piece, an important piece of that, of what's causing the forest fires, what's causing the increased probability of flooding or of drought or of, of other climate extreme events. So we've got to find a way to go carbon and negative. And there are very few options available to go carbon negative. You've probably heard about um, direct air capture. Yeah. So these are big devices that will literally capture CO2 out of the atmosphere, put it in a form a chemical form that can then be um, released under and, and, and pumped under pressure. So you've now got it in a pipeline of CO2 and then you run that pipeline where you've got the right geology and you pump it down into the ground and into some kind of a sandstone or something under, under the underground where hopefully it stays for indefinite period of time. Um, it's really expensive to do that. It takes a huge amount of energy to uh, capture that CO2, run it in a pipeline, pump it underground, and so on. Um, so yes, that's an effective method, but boy, we can't afford it. Uh, not not and, and all the other things, that, and to get that at scale. Um, another thought has been to use what's called um, accelerated mineral weathering. And it turns out you can take uh, certain types of silicate rocks that have uh, calcium, magnesium in them, and you crush them up so they're real fine and, and they'll react with the CO2 in the atmosphere and make carbonates. So make limestone-like materials. And that's another way we can maybe pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, again, that's fairly expensive to do that. You got to mine the rock, you got to crush it, you got to spread it out somewhere and let the reaction occur. So these are certainly options, but they are challenging to implement and, and they generate no net economic value other than removing the CO2 from the atmosphere. There's no you know, it's, it's got to be totally taxpayer funded or, you know, some kind of carbon credit funding that drives those mechanisms. Biochar is a unique option um, in that 
it produces value in addition to capturing the carbon. So an, another option that I haven't mentioned is BECS. You've heard of BECS, but bioenergy, carbon capture and storage. And so the, the classic concept of BECS is that you would like take woody biomass trees, right? And you would burn them, use the heat from the burning to boil water and use the steam to run a steam turbine and generate electricity the electricity on the grid. So you're gaining a value from that, right? You, you're, oh, and then the other thing is, then from that power plant, you capture the CO2 and you put it in a pipeline and then you pump it underground and uh, BEX systems are considered to be carbon negative. And, and you will find a lot in IPCC reports about BEX. It's the IPCC is uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, is that right? Yep, that acronym that is correct. Essentially, the leading science and scientists from the entire global community looking at all of this from a, a data-driven data and peer-reviewed uh, standpoint. Right. And, and they have proposed, you know, they've, they've said we've got to go carbon negative in the second half of the century. And they put BECs forward along with uh, this accelerated mineral weathering and direct air capture as options for going carbon negative, for pulling the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So in the case of BECs, at least you're generating value, you're generating electricity and you're capturing carbon. So that's seen as, as one of the more promising approaches. I, I'm a soil scientist. And um, to be blunt, Beck scares me a little bit because I know what happens if you, at least on agricultural soils, forest soils are a little different, but on agricultural soils, if I harvest all that corn stover or wheat stover and burn it to generate electricity, I know what's going to happen to my soil quality the organic matter, the humus in that soil is going to start to degrade over time. And yeah, we'll lose fertility, huh? You're going to lose, you're going to lose nutrient water holding capacity. Nutrient cycling is going to decrease. You're going to see the soils consolidate, become harder, more difficult for roots to grow in. And ultimately, uh, you know, if, if we start harvesting gigatons of residue off our ag soils to remove carbon from the atmosphere. We could, you know, we might remove the carbon from the atmosphere, but we might starve to death. I mean, uh, it, it, you don't want to go down that route. Well, and we, and we know that already worldwide soils are in decline and have been in decline in, in large part because of our industrial approach to agriculture. You, you, you really need to look for synergisms that can build soil quality at the same time. And that's the unique thing about biochar. I can take the crop residue off of a cornfield. I can pyrolyze it, generate energy, and put the char back on the same field from which I took that residue off of. And build 
soil carbon, soil quality, soil health at the same time. That's the win-win-win part of this. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's it's the exciting. exciting. Part. Yeah, it's yeah. fabulous, right? What and what, the, what's, and you can remove carbon from the atmosphere at the same time. Yeah. You know, and by the way, when earlier you were talking about how uh, uh, diamonds and graphite are not uh, bioavailable, they don't get eaten. I, I almost wanted to interject with a little joke about uh, when we were back in kindergarten. Some of us uh, tried eating graphite in our pencils, I think. But, uh, you know, that's I don't think just it the, hurt you. It just went yeah. through. <laughs> it's just passing through. <laughs> but, I mean, in, in order, you know, thinking about the children and, and thinking about future generations and thinking about the work we can be doing in our lifetimes, the work that you're doing, David, you know, what is needed from your perspective to scale up this particular win-win-win solution so that we are addressing climate stability while we are also addressing the nutrient and uh, food production needs of the world? What do, you, what do you think we need to see happen in order to scale this? Um, all right. So I'm a scientist, so I, I'm going to say we need more research, right? Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Um, but we can't sit around for 30 years or 50 years doing all the perfect research, right? We've got to get going now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we can do the research while we are going ahead with the development of this. Um, don't, don't let perfect get in the way of good, right? Uh, be the enemy of good, right? We can't. Yeah. Um, and, and nobody said biochar systems are perfect. They're not. They've got issues. And, 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 and you know, I, just to, you know, put it on the table here. You know, if, if I look at the literature, the scientific literature, I see uh, many cases where biochar results in a positive crop yield increase, right? We're all, we're all happy about it. I see also many cases where there is no net effect. Of biochar. I put it on and, you know, I got the same yield as before. And there are some cases where you actually see yield decreases. Okay. Now, that is not magic. It's not random. It is driven by agronomy, by the type of crop, the type of soil, the climate, the management system that was used. And we need to understand from a research perspective that if I use this type of biochar on this soil with this crop and this climate and this management system, that I'm gonna have a positive outcome. And if I do it with a different one, I'm gonna have a negative outcome. We need to be able to tell the farmers, the land managers that the recipe or the prescription, how to use biochar to get the maximum soil quality, soil health benefit, to maximize your crop yield uh, potential as well. So that research needs to be done. Okay, that, but as I said, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good because that's the perfect, right? When we know all of that and we can, we can hand the prescription to the farmer, this is how to do it. Well, we're also going to learn by doing. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to, you know, 
not make those mistakes twice, right? That's the whole idea. And so we'll iterative get better and better with time. So we need to get start in on the practice. Um, to scale biomass to the gigaton level, I hate to say it, but it's money. It's gotta be, it's gotta be, there's gotta be a net value. You know, I look at the, I know a lot of corn farmers here in Iowa and, you know, they've got really thin margins, the cost of inputs, you know, equipment, you know, on and on and on. They can't just apply biochar because it's a nice thing to do. We want them to, and, and, and by the way, you know, we're never going to get there by putting biochar in our backyard garden. I mean, that's, you know, that's a cool thing to do. Right. And, and I did it right. Um, but it's not going to get a gigaton of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So if we're scaling it, we've got to have biochar applied on cornfields all over the Midwest on uh, you know, uh, horticultural crops in California, on cotton down in, in, in Georgia, Louisiana, and, in, and not just in the U.S., but all over the world. We've got to have an integrated system that gets us to, to that level. And, you know, the way the world works is with money. It's got to be profitable for the farmer to want to apply that biochar on their field. And there's really two ways you do that. One, you get an increase in your crop yield, or you get an improvement in your nutrient use efficiency. So you can put on less fertilizer and get the same yield, right? Um, or you get some kind of a subsidy, and that subsidy could be you know, a tax credit. It could be a direct subsidy from the government. It could be a carbon credit that is sold on the Chicago Board of Trade. Uh, in some way or another, the profit has to go to the farmer so that the farmer is incentivized to use biochar. And, and you know, again, I've done the, the, the math for you know, cornfields in Iowa, because you know, if, if we can get Iowa farmers to use biochar on a regular basis. We're, we're home. We've 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 made the home run, right? And and you know, at most, an Iowa farmer could afford to pay somewhere around fifty dollars a ton for the biochar if it's based on yield improvement. And that's it. That's it. If you look at where the biochar industry is today, um they'll be happy to sell you a ton of biochar for a thousand dollars. It's small scale and their markets are niche markets. They're, they're targeting high value horticultural crops. You know, to put in um, an acre of strawberries in California, Central Valley, um, is it close to a hundred thousand dollars in one acre, right? So if you spend a few thousand dollars on biochar, that's chunk change by comparison to the money that's being involved in the production of those strawberries. And you look at a lot of the, you know, orchards and vineyards, those markets have that high dollar value and 
can afford to invest in biochar, particularly if the biochar improves water use efficiency. Mm -hmm. So what's the big problem out in the Central Valley? It's water. Yeah. And if I can Absolutely. get 10 or 20% improvement in my water use efficiency by putting biochar on, it's worth it to me. If I have a $100,000 crop out there, right? But if you're trying to grow uh, corn in Iowa, where your margin is a couple hundred dollars an acre, you can't afford it. Yep. I'm, I'm hearing from some of our friends and colleagues in the uh, finance world that uh, there's, there's global demand now for carbon credits coming from biochar with buyers willing to pay well over $100 a ton, sometimes $150 a ton. So it seems to me, because I've you know, i I've been in this, this world for 20, 25 years, not, not as long as you, David, but long enough to, to know that we've had decades of folks saying, hey, when the carbon markets come, when the carbon tax or credits come and, and provide that additional economic signaling, uh, that's going to be the game changer. Well, seems that we are, those days have arrived, they're here. Clearly, they're they're nascent, they're young, and have a long way to go. But by golly, it seems that those market signals are already starting to show up in a manner that that can make some very meaningful impact on the microeconomics of these farmers. I I absolutely agree with you. Um, we're starting to see the sale of carbon credits here in the U.S. for biochar. There are broader sales in Europe and other parts of the world. And they are attracting a high value for those carbon credits, not top dollar. I heard that um, in Iceland, I think it's Iceland, there is a direct air capture system and geological sequestration of seeds. They were, they were selling carbon credits for $600 a ton. Amazing. You know, if we were selling biochar carbon credits for $600 a ton of CO2, let me tell you, Iowa farmers would be applying biochar by the gigaton. Yeah. It would yeah. happen like that, right? Yeah. Uh, more realistic, $200 a ton would be enough to incentivize wide-scale and scale-up application. And I think we're headed that direction. We're wow. not quite there, but we're getting close. But it also means that we have to have industrial scale production of biochar. Yeah. We're not gonna be doing it on farm and in, in our backyards. I, I know that there's a lot of um, biochar producers out there that don't wanna hear this. And, and you know, if you can sell biochar for $100 a ton or $50 a ton, um, how are we gonna do that? Mm -hmm. And how are we going to process gigatons of biomass in order to get there. Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, it took huge industry, the oil and fossil fuel, uh, coal industries to get us in this problem. And it's going to take that same scale of operation to get us out of it. I don't see another way. And yeah. that is emerging. The opportunity is coming. Um, I've been working with um, Robert Brown at the Iowa State University Bioeconomy Institute. 
and his team and their engineers, and they worked on a development of um, a process known as autothermal fast pyrolysis. And it's a really cool technology because it, the autothermal means that it makes its own energy. It doesn't require inter, you know, uh, energy from outside world. It, it makes its own in the process. And it produces two things. It produces biochar and a bio oil product. The bio oil can be used directly to make asphalt, pave a road. And you'll get a carbon credit for, because that asphalt is sequestering carbon, right? Or you can take that bio oil and, and, and it's complicated. It's not, it's not as simple as I'm going to make it at sound. There are multiple steps in here, but uh, you can essentially generate things like jet fuel for aircraft or marine fuel for big ocean going ships. Okay. And this means that you can address some of those very difficult to decarbonize uh, uh, sectors of the economy. So, you know, we can all drive electric cars. I would love to have a Tesla, right? Uh, probably my, my next car is definitely going to be an electric car. Okay. Um, not necessarily a Tesla. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not going there. Uh, 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 anyhow, but we're not going to fly in an electric jet. It don't. It won't happen, folks. And and there's no. We're not going to be sending um, huge container ships over to China uh, with with grain or bringing vehicles back from Japan or tennis shoes or whatever products are coming from around the world on these huge container ships. We're not going to run those on batteries either. They're just not going to happen. Um, and even, you know, heavy trucks, big over the road semis, uh, combines in agricultural fields, earth moving equipment. Some of this equipment is really difficult to electrify. It's going to take, you know, an order of magnitude improvement in energy density storage of batteries before we're going to be able to electrify uh, a combine in a, in, a, in a field, a tractor, that, that kind of heavy equipment. Um, it works great for a passenger car, but it's much more challenging for some of these other transportation sectors. And the fuel that they burn is diesel or a marine fuel or a jet fuel, not gasoline. Um, and as we look to decarbonize that part of our economy, we've got to find carbon neutral and ideally carbon negative sources of liquid fuels to do that. And I know there's been a lot of talk about using, for example, hydrogen run a jet aircraft and there's some demonstration scales out there but think of the cost of completely rebuilding our jet fleet around the world and not only that but of building the infrastructure to produce the hydrogen store it and load it onto these aircraft we can't afford that 
and not at least in the foreseeable future. We've got to have drop-in liquid fuels for these hard to replace, um, hard to electrify uh, transportation sectors. And um, this bio oil that we can get from autothermal fast paralysis gets us there. It provides that fuel source and it provides the economic value to pay for the process so that the biochar can literally potentially even be given away to the farmers. No, it's amazing. That's so exciting to think about. And, and by the way, I want to share with our audience that uh, David, you provided us several links and images that we'll be including in the show notes um, on the uh, autothermal fast paralysis technology, a number of videos, including uh, at least one in which you are uh, filmed talking about biochar. And um, we've even got a, 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 mic, a scanning micron uh, electrograph image of the biochar down at around the 10 micron level that we'll include in the publication. And I want to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. Today, we're visiting with soil scientist and professor emeritus David Laird talking about biochar as one of the win-win-win opportunities we have to help tackle and address some of the systemic challenges that we're facing right now. I want to give a quick shout out to our Why on Earth community ambassadors. Uh, and those who have joined our monthly giving program to help support our podcast series and our other stewardship and sustainability work. If you haven't yet joined the monthly giving program and you would like to, you can go to whyonearth.org and click on the donate button and set any monthly level you'd like to give. If you give at the $33 or greater level, we're happy to send you monthly shipments of our regeneratively grown aromatherapy hemp infused soaking salts from Waylay Waters. And uh, there's $33, $55 and $77 a month. You get one, three or five jars per month of the soaking salts as a thank you gift. Want to also give a big shout out to our friends at Purium, the organic superfoods company that keeps me fueled and uh, actually has helped me lose some weight. And uh, we have a special partnership with Purium where you'll get $50 at least off your first order or 25%, whichever is greater. And it's a 60-day uh, money-back guarantee, no questions asked. Uh, additionally, 20% of your purchases, all of your purchases, uh, come back to support the Why on Earth community. And these are amazing, delicious superfoods. I like to call it... Uh, liquid sunshine, liquid Veriditas. And, and speaking of Veriditas, the green healing energy in plants, uh, the term coined by Hildegard von Bingen about 900 years ago, want to be sure to mention uh, my new novel, Veriditas, The Great Healing is Within Our Power. This is available in print and ebook 
at veriditasbook.com. That's V-I-R-I-D-I-T-A-S book.com. And in this story, you're going to follow the characters along as they visit many regenerative farms. And as the main character, Brigitte Sophia, a brilliant computer scientist, goes through an extraordinary transformation and awakening of awareness as she experiences uh, so many new aspects of what it means to be alive on the planet right now and, and what is possible in terms of healing, regenerating, and restoring our ecosystems, our communities, even the health of our own bodies. And I thought, David, it'd be fun to show here for folks watching the video. I've got a handful of the biochar here. This came from uh, Rowdy Yates, my buddy up in Laramie, Wyoming, his High Plains Biochar Company, and that's another podcast episode. If folks are interested, we've got some video of his uh, small-scale technology there, farm-scale, community-scale, uh, and it's so fun to play with, and uh, we, we've enjoyed putting this into the soils here at Elk Run Farm, where we're located. And, uh, of course, want to mention we've got our soil stewardship handbook available at whyonearth.org. This is the quick and dirty uh, kind of get going to understand soil and its connection with climate, health, nutrition, and, and even our own uh, neurobiochemical health and well-being at the individual level when we get our hands in the soil. There's so much beautiful science on that now uh, as well. And, uh, David, it's it's so wonderful talking with you about all of this. I've got pages of notes here that I'm uh, looking forward to consolidating into the show notes when we publish this episode, you know, and more than anything, I'm so excited about the, the hopefulness of the win-win-win opportunities that we have here at scale. And I know that big policy is part of what's needed to move all of this forward. And I, and I also know that you've been a part of it, a really important legislative effort here in the United States. And I wanted to be sure to ask you about this Biochar Research Network Act of 2022 and how you're anticipating that is going to potentially play out in the upcoming Farm Bill and what folks can do here in the United States, we're talking, uh, in terms of civic engagement to help support this bipartisan effort that uh, that you're a part of, David. Uh, thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate, appreciate it. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I retired from Iowa State University, so I, I'm now a free agent, right? I can do what I want to. And uh, I thought it would be a, a value to work with a group of colleagues and try to advance at the uh, piece of legislation, basically, um, that will support a research network, 20 sites around the U.S., doing long-term biochar research to answer some of those questions that I was talking about earlier. You know, how do we get, how do we assure the farmer that we're gonna get a positive outcome and not a negative outcome on his farm or her farm with her biochar, with management system, with climate, with soil, and all of that being integrated. We need that information going forward. And it's gotta be, part of the economic package that accelerates the adoption of biochar systems in the US. Certainly the bioenergy that I was talking about is the economic opportunity, but if a farmer sees it hurting her yields, right? <laughs> she ain't gonna want it. 
Okay, so we've got to have that research. And so we put together a team um, really of eminent scientists, uh, my colleague and good friend, Jim Amanette, who's out at uh, Washington State University and uh, Battelle Pacific Northwest Labs, um, uh, Humberto Blanco is University of Nebraska, uh, Chuck Hassebrook, who um, is a politician. He's actually the guy who organized us and Chuck, um, he, um, he, he ran for governor of uh, the state of Nebraska, also Senate, lost both of them, but he's, you know, he's, he's deeply ingrained in the politics and he guided us through this. So uh, great kudos to Chuck. Um, and uh, Johannes Lehman, uh, who is uh, certainly most, probably most widely recognized biochar expert in the world. Uh, Ratan Lau. Ratan Lau at the Ohio State University, World Food Prize Laureate, um, uh, very widely recognized. Uh, Debbie Dunrose, uh, Paige Dunrose, who's uh, with the US Forest Service. Um, we got together as a team and we wrote a refereed publication called um, The Integrated Biochar Research Roadmap. And this was published in, in 2021. And this was an academic effort, and we tried to envision what research would be needed in order to take biochar to the next level, to address some of the, both the more theoretical, to develop computer models, and then to develop the very applied on-farm um, uh, research that will help land managers and farmers to you know, really utilize this stuff appropriately. And, uh, and then Chuck helped lead us uh, to contact people within the Department of Energy, within the USDA. We even spoke twice with people in the White House. Uh, so, you know, we've had all these contacts and all this information and with senators and their aides. And we managed to assemble a broad bipartisan. This is not a Democratic initiative. This is not a Republican initiative. We've got both parties on board, and we've got this bill introduced into both the U.S. House and in the United States Senate. Um, but it's a standalone piece of legislation, and the way Congress works, it's never going to be, they're never going to get around to voting on one little piece of legislation. And, and what it would do is fund this biochar research network to get the research done that needs to be done. Um, this is known in the, in the House of Representatives, it's uh, HR 8596. And in the US Senate, it was S4895. And you'll post that on your notes, I hope, Aaron. We sure will. Yeah, and, and you've got a link to the text of the bill you've provided. We'll include that as well. Great, great. Folks can check that out. So how's this going to become law? How are we going to get this funding that we need for this? It, the, the, uh, the, the strategy is to get it incorporated into the 2023 Farm Bill. That's the way, you know, what did they say about if you like um, sausages and you like laws, 
you don't want to know how either of them are made, right? Um, <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Yes, I did. Well, that's life. But we still, you know, one could get cynical. I'm not going to get cynical. I'm still positive and we're going to move forward. And that's what we are trying to do. So if we can get this piece of legislation woven into the farm bill, we can get it funded and we can make this big step, really critical step towards getting biochar and bioenergy, integrated biochar energy systems to scale up towards that gigaton level. And well, so what you as a listener can do is to contact your senators, your representatives, and encourage them to support um, the inclusion of this bill in the 2023 Farm Bill. And particularly if you've got uh, your senator or congressperson is on one of the ag committees, either in the Senate or the House, because this is where they they'll meet in the conference and throw things out and you know, uh, you know, you know how it goes, right? But that's where the action will be, and that's where the final decision will be to fund this and throw this away. And we want to have enough public support, enough people calling their senators and their representatives to encourage them to uh, support this and build that public momentum. Uh, we can get this thing funded and we can get the research done and we can build biochar towards that gigaton scale. Now, I don't want to oversell biochar. I, I'm, you know, I've been, I've been involved in this for a long time, and I spent much of my research career at Iowa State University working on biochar and, and, and agronomic and environmental systems, and, and, and you know, I, on and on. But the challenge of climate change is so enormous that biochar by itself is not the solution. It is a piece of the solution. We've got to layer on energy efficiency. We've got to, uh, uh, you know, develop whole new ways of generating, you know, solar, uh, wind, uh, storage. Uh, we've got to put, you know, reforestation. We've got to do all of the above if we're going to actually solve this problem. But biochar is a significant piece and it can be scaled up. Uh, my estimate is that here in the United States, between either offsetting petroleum with the bio oil and or the carbon that we put in the ground from the biochar that is sequestered for a thousand years, between those two, we can have a net carbon reduction of probably close to a gigaton in the United States. And then if you start extrapolating that globally, it's probably almost 10 times that globally. So- Is, it, that, is, that, is that an annual rate? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. It's, that is amazing. That is the upper limit, right? You know, we won't probably won't get there. But at least, and, and what is the upper limit limited by? 
it's limited by the amount of biomass that can be sustainably put through this process. Yep, if that's so exciting. Sustainable if you put the char back on the soil. If you yeah. just ran the biomass and burned it, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, this is so wonderful, David, and I, I know that we're going to have a few extra minutes together in our behind-the-scenes recording, which is made available to our ambassadors. Uh, you do need the ambassador password to access that additional material along with some of the other resources we make available there. If you're not an ambassador and you'd like to become one, go to whyonearth.org and, and you'll see a lot of information in some pages uh, about our current ambassadors and how to get involved in our ambassador network. Um, but, but before we transition to our behind the scenes piece, David, and uh, have a, a continued chat on all of this, I want to just thank you for taking the time to visit with me and to share this really important information with our audience. And before closing the podcast episode, want to give the floor back to you to share anything additional you'd like to say to our audience, any uh, closing remarks or statements. Uh, uh, now is a great time. And thanks again for being on the show. Uh, well, Aaron, thank you uh, for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to, to meet with you and with your audience and with the team you built. Um, you know, I guess uh, we're in very challenging times. I mean, oh my gosh, politically, uh, economically, uh, the war in Ukraine, I mean, on and on. It's, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to, um, but we can't. We've got to be positive. We've got to look for solutions. Uh, and you've got to do what you can do out there, right? Take the action that is within your grasp and make the most of it, whether it's on a personal level in your own life or in uh, the politics, uh, talking to your congressmen, talking to your senators, uh, whether it's running for public office. Um, I encourage everyone to do what you can, what is within your purview to do, uh, and help us to solve these problems and help us to you know, find ways to bridge the political divide that's in this country. I mean, that's, that's probably the worst of it right now, other than the threat of nuclear war, but who knows? Uh, so don't lose hope, uh, get involved and um, do good works. Thank you. Well, thank you, David. You're clearly doing great work and uh, appreciate you being on the show. Thanks again. Thank you. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WhyOnEarth, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. 
Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.